Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. Awesome. Well, welcome everyone. Hi, Ollie. It's great to have you on our podcast today, Happy Path Programming. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's a pleasure. So fun. So uh, for those that don't know Ollie, um, I met her first um, because she was creating some amazing Scala Zio content and helping me learn some Scala Zio stuff. And, uh, and so that was, I think, my first interaction with you. But over the last couple of years, now I've been able to get to know you a lot better. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, it's, you know, it's such a pleasure to have you on and get to chat about some, some fun stuff. We've got a couple ideas for topics, but we'll, as usual, we'll just see where this goes. So, but maybe, maybe you should start with just a little bit of introduction about yourself and so our listeners can get to know you. Yeah. So I'm Ollie. I'm a Scala developer in the past and right now I started my own business around online conferences so I'm organizing them. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, functional programming. I really love that approach and uh, yeah at some point I think I looked at Zio and I was like wow this wonderful idea but then since I started to move uh, away from like uh, day-by-day development, I kind of lost my expertise in that. So I wouldn't uh, count myself as an expert in in that. But uh, apart from that, I love recursion schemes. That's uh, really my topic. Uh, So I've done uh, a few few talks about that, uh, including one keynote with... um, Bartosz Milewski, and why I mentioned that, awesome. actually, I have a, a new microphone here and new headset, which came to me from that conference where we gave a keynote. And I hope you like the sound. because It sounds it, great. Yeah. 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 So that was actually one thing we were going to ask you about is I haven't watched it yet, but I saw that you did a talk at uh, a Scala conference. Which Scala conference was the recursion schemes one at? Uh, so there were two conferences actually, and there are two parts of the talk, and we will create the third one. The first one was at um, that was actually my first online conference um, ever, because before I participated in online meetups and the online conferences uh, didn't actually exist in such a volume as they are now. And that was Kala UA, uh, Ukrainian uh, edition. Okay. And I hoped to travel there, but unfortunately we couldn't because of the lockdown and <laughs> etc. So that was about like uh, algebras and uh uh, catamorphisms and the next one we did a year almost a year later at functional scala conference uh, that was about co-algebras and anamorphisms <laughs> wow nice yeah. and and so the that one was the one which was titled recursion schemes or something like that or or was that a different one? yeah recursion schemes categorically and Another one growing a uh, tree from a seed. Okay, <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So give us a little bit of uh, background on what that talk is about and the uh, recursion schemes one. And um, yeah, I because I haven't watched it yet, 
uh, so <laughs> the idea is simple it's just an introduction to the recursion schemes uh, approach uh, so the entire uh, problem that the recursion scheme is trying to solve is to separate how you traverse how you uh, recurse through this uh, data structure and how you actually operate on that so for example when you do uh, like uh, sorting algorithm it usually you iterate through the structure you split it and like uh, uh, how is that called something and conquer divide and conquer right okay and mm -hmm. it's like recursive algorithms and you do something for example comparison uh, of two elements but on top of that you also do the iteration so the idea is that you can once write that uh, recursion part and then have uh, the function, the actual function, uh, separately. So when you look at the code, if you're familiar with the approach, you will immediately know what's going on without digging into the details of the recursion. So it's separate. Okay. So it's is that like, I mean, like when you do recursion now, you have mm -hmm. to go, oh, in order for tail recursion to work, I have to make the recursive call exactly right. And are you trying to abstract away from that yes, so that I don't yes. have to? Oh. In a way, it's like a visitor pattern where mm -hmm. you uh, separate uh, when you visit a knot and what you actually do with that, right? That makes sense. Interesting. Yeah. So are people using this, this separation? <laughs> Now, or is this more fantastic, like on the conceptual question? It's conceptual. I wouldn't recommend okay. to repeat that at home if you don't know what you're doing. I usually don't know what I'm doing, but yet I use that None of in us production. Do. <laughs> yeah, I used that in production uh, a few times while I was working as a consultant at 47 degrees, and uh, there were different, um, like. Usually it comes with like you're building a DSL, domain specific language, and you need to uh, parse uh, what's going on, what your data scientist, for example, wrote uh, on this subset of Scala or on another language. And you're trying to uh, go recursively through the code and uh, then uh, execute something. For example, the often... Um, people are writing uh, uh, calculator okay. uh, when it comes to recursion schemes and they're trying, okay, this plus sign in the code is actually plus. Then uh, you go into that um, like deeper in the equation and you see, okay, this divide mark like slash means divide. Etc. Etc. Yeah. So you translate from one language to another, and you don't have to think at this moment about like how to uh, go deeper into the equation. You're thinking only about how to translate the slash to divide and plus yeah. to. Uh, yeah, I guess your your analogy to the visitor pattern makes sense because usually, usually in that kind of pattern, we couple together the 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 recursion or how to proceed with the actual parsing and decision making for what to do and what you're saying is like separate out the the recursive side of it from the decision making side of it or something yeah. I, would, I would think a better analogy might be iterator because that allows you to move through 
a collection without knowing the underlying structure of the collection. And it seems like that's sort of what you're trying to do here. You're trying to implement something that happens to use recursion, but that's not front and center like it is normally. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's probably also good. Like iteration. Uh, Yeah. I haven't thought about that because usually people use like visitor pattern and I fully agree with that, but iteration sounds, but there is a difference, I guess. Oh yeah. I mean, but visitor is designed for if you have a frozen hierarchy and you want to add functionality to it. So it's like, I don't know. I often find Hmm. visitor is maybe misunderstood that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this sounds like you've discovered a better way to do recursive stuff. Is this something yeah. where where like the discovery happens, some experimentation happens, some like maybe libraries start to adopt this approach and then and then is there do you foresee a future where this idea changes Scala or other programming languages to like better create a better um, way to, for developers to actually code in this way? So uh, the fact is that this approach uh, started to being popularized by Eric Mayer uh, with this, with his paper, uh, Bananas, uh, Wired, <laughs> something something okay i, yeah, I, for, I, I forgot that, that one, yeah. so in, interesting interesting so huh. it's it's pretty um like once you start to read it it's hard but then you grasp the idea and understand all of this uh barbed wire uh symbols and everything so you start to grasp that idea but i don't think that everyday developer would uh use it and that would change uh, like scala a lot because uh same with macros you know uh the library authors uh, would use that for their advantage and uh, it's a great technique but for everyday programming who's writing like create uh, update delete kind of applications it's not really something that they would look at yeah yeah Mm. yeah so So there are libraries like drosty and matryoshka which uh, allows you to use that uh, catamorphism, anamorphism, and whatever morphisms, uh, like weird, weird names. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so since you've you've done uh, a talk or a related talk about this with um, Bartov, uh, is that right? Bartosz. His name, yeah, Bartosz. Uh, it, it sounds like there's some category theory under yeah, of course, of, of, of course. here too. Of course. Do you want to tell us, blow our minds with with the category theory uh, ideas underneath this. So the idea is simple. Um, everything in category theory is simple, actually, but you have to spend your time on on that. So there are uh, basically diagrams which allows you to understand why a certain uh, kata or ana works. So you can write a diagram going from um, like one factorial to another, mapping over them and build build morphisms and then 
if the uh, the diagram computes, uh, which means that you can um, basically swap. go yes yes swap, then uh, basically with a pen and pencil you can uh, draw that diagram and uh, figure out the entire recursion schemes where they come from, just huh. based on identity and. Uh, um, Wow. Commuting diagram. So yeah. it's and in that in these talks, in both of these talks, we're drawing diagrams like that. Like uh understanding of the uh actual formula of the function. Yeah. Yeah, so so given if you do recursion in this way and you abide by certain algebraic laws or whatever then that allows you to have a structure that is that also has algebraic properties or is am i saying that at all right yes yes <laughs> and and then because it has certain algebraic properties you could um you could do certain things that you couldn't do otherwise with it um you could uh, there's maybe optimizations that you could make on how you run it or something like that is that yeah, there are optimizations. I haven't looked at them closely because I know that uh, recursion schemes, anyway, they're uh, kind of slow. So if you're doing big data or uh, something like that, like um, data-intensive applications, then uh, you probably can't use them. So I tried to do um, the following uh, at my client's um, uh, project. So they had, uh, this is a mobile carrier, doesn't matter which one. So they have uh, towers uh, with the data and the data is written in very old ASBN1 format or something. Um, and uh, we have a, uh, a big cluster of microservices where we're talking about like Kafka, whatever Spark and everything in that. And uh, they are talking to each other, sending like protobufs and you need to uh, convert the old format uh, to that protobuf and uh, like use schema and whatever. And this is the perfect um a perfect um, use case for recursion schemes because instead of writing manually A goes to A, B goes to B, you should generate that dynamically using recursion schemes like naming yeah. and everything. Uh, so um, I was trying to do that, but the problem was that this is mobile carrier and it's a large uh, amount of data uh and they need something like uh, 5 million transactions per second. <laughs> that's a lot. Yes, that's a huge. One of the biggest projects in terms of load uh, that I was working on, except probably Expedia, where I was working on payment system, and that was bigger than that. Huh. E and um, uh, so... It, it didn't show, I mean, although it was so elegant, as always <laughs> with category theory, like just a few lines of, of code and everything is like 
debuggable and uh, you can look at the uh, like tests and they would look wonderful too because you don't have to uh, test this uh, recursion part. You right. just test the uh, very simple unit tests or like property-based testing would work yeah. on, on that side, but it was so slow. <laughs> Interesting. Yes. So huh. I, I, I wouldn't recommend that. But as an <laughs> so, but it's it theoretically it should be possible to to find ways to to make it perform, um, and and maybe I don't know if that's language or VM level stuff or or whatever. I uh, I just watched a talk from Alexander from uh, the um, uh, um, uh, what's the name of the SQL library that that he took over. Uh, that I love and I'm spacing on the name of it. But anyways, oh, he did the type think... class derivation talk. Oh, no. Talk. What? Type um, class derivation talk? Uh, yeah, yeah, so he did this talk on type Quill. class derivation. Yeah. Is it Quill? Quill, yes, thank you, Quill. Um, so so he did this talk on type class derivation and he went through the talk and he's like, you know, the the usual thinking is that to have performance around a serializer, we need to use mutability and, you know, add things to a map and, and he's measuring the performance of doing that. And he's like, okay, you know, so we're able to use type class derivation and, and get pretty similar performance, but we're still writing to a map. And then he was like, and just to see how it'd be different, I tried the immutable approach to this and it actually was faster. And he's like, I don't know why or how it's faster because what you've always been told is that the elegant way, the immutable way is going to be slower, but somehow, somehow through some optimization that the compiler was doing or something, it was actually faster to do it the elegant immutable way. And his initial examples, the immutable way was significantly slower. That's right. So, you know, what changed? Yeah. I, I only got like, Oh man, probably a quarter of the way through that talk before it lost me completely. I mean, he's brilliant for sure. And, yeah. and a lot of it was on like some deep metaprogramming stuff, but, mm-hmm. but it was cool mm-hmm. that, that, you know, the crescendo of the talk, like, and you can do it the elegant way and not sacrifice the performance, but even he didn't understand why the immutable way was faster. Just intuitively yes. though. It seems like the immutable approach would be faster because you're not, I mean, like, well, I mean, just when you're dealing with concurrency, you don't have to lock things, for example. So wouldn't that make it faster? And yeah, yeah, it just seems to me that immutability is going to be a faster approach. Yeah. But I, you know, I don't know enough about it to. We've just always been told that it's slower, but. Well, that doesn't, you know, <laughs> one of the one of those underlying assumptions. That, I mean, because of the creation and uh, the creation of the yeah. objects and allocation, the, yeah, yeah, all the all the all the heap, um, all the like agitation on the heap. <laughs> but then, when you like, when you're able to take slices, you don't have to recreate things. Yeah, so yeah, it seems that's like true. That would speed things up. You know, there's. It just seems like there's a lot of things that, I mean, my, without being told, my guess was that it was faster. So I don't know why I was wrong. I remember there was a related discussion, and this actually relates to the recursion one, where one of the arguments that you often hear against functional programming is, 
oh, like quicksort is so slow in functional programming. And that's something that I've heard as an argument many times. And then just, just recently I saw somebody actually be like, actually, it's not. Like, you know, and they, they had some actual examples to show where you can program quicksort functionally and not take a huge performance hit versus the mutable approaches. And, um, it's just yeah. polymorphism. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah. I've written all, uh, popular sortings in, using recursion schemes, actually. Nice. All this insertion sort, merge sort, uh, quick sort. That was my uh, home exercise. I gave a talk about that too. I, wow. I'm not sure it's. Uh, was that all actually. in Haskell or Scala or something else? No, Scala, Scala. Oh, nice. Scala. I, awesome. I had a long uh, trip, a long uh, um, flight from uh, Seattle, where I'm based to Belarus and while I was flying I was writing the code with like all these sortings so that was fun I miss those long flights where I can get that kind of work done I mean not that kind of work because I'm not that smart but um, (laughs) but, you know projects like projects that are great for an airplane there I would always have my list of airplane projects that I would work on yeah yeah. so I have two topics that I want to uh talk about with you. And one is your online um, conference thing, because I've been experimenting with conference organization for 20 years or something, at least 20 years. And way early, um, I was doing these experiments with Martin Fowler, and we would try different things. I mean, mostly Martin would come up with new ideas, and we would try them. <clears throat> and uh, we eventually found open spaces, and that's what mm-hmm. I've been doing ever since. So it's a self-organizing conference system, and we've sort of been tuning that. And that, for me anyway, works really well, and the people who come to the conference work really well. And I don't know if you're familiar with that or if you've ever experienced anything like that. Okay, you haven't. All right. So, well, that was going to be my question was, have you thought of doing that? Because we've tried to experiment with how could we move more of the open spaces idea online? And, you know, there's some technologies that we've tried. And Tell uh, me a it, little bit about that and I'll tell you uh, what can be done, like what we are doing similar to that okay so the way so the conference is not organized up front there are no speakers Mm -hmm. um it's all about conversations and at the beginning of the conference we put up a board with rooms and times and people grab post-it notes and if there's a topic that they're interested in talking about yeah they put the topic down they say who the convener is. There's a book called Open Spaces by Harrison Owen, and he describes he's basically the guy who invented it. And um, so there's it, a there's a foundational kind of um, rule, kind of there's there's the system for how Open Spaces works. But I did want to interject real quick that this is also I've heard it called Lean Coffee is another name for it. So oh it well, that's be, a newer name that people would come up with. Yeah, I mean the idea is that. The goal is to have conversations and not to have what's called eyes forward presentations, which, you know, you're sitting in your eyes are forward and there's one person or they, they also have it. What are the the um, the the 
sage on the stage i think they okay. also say sage you know which stage. is the idea that oh one person knows things and everybody else is absorbing things and what we discover is that everybody the most you know inexperienced programmer has things to contribute to this you know they they and and everybody goes oh yeah i never thought of that but because you're coming in looking at it with fresh eyes you have this contribution to make so um, and then people start having conversations and it just keeps going and everybody has a great time. So it's, it kind of ruins you for regular conferences because it's so connection oriented between mm-hmm. people. Um, so the, um, the thing that we've tried to put online is the... Oh, well, before you go there, let's talk about the rules of open spaces because I think that helps, helps to understand like how right. it works or why it works. Right. So you've got the the grid with the times and the and the rooms, but the rules are really the the way that it I, I think actually functions and is is useful. So one rule is the law of two feet, which is that if you're ever in a session and you're um, not fully engaged, not fully engaged, then you use your two feet and you walk away and go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So this creates this nice checks and balances because if someone is dominating the conversation, oftentimes that results in people not feeling engaged. And so then everyone should leave. And this is something that took me years to be comfortable with because it's really like you feel very rude to like walk away while someone is is talking. Yeah. And I have to cast it in the form of saying you're actually helping. Because if you're in the room and you're not engaged, you're you're kind of drawing the energy down. So you're you're damaging the conversation by being there and not being engaged. You know, I I I have all these arguments to because people are so averse to getting up and leaving, and it's still not a comfortable. It, yeah, I mean, I I think people still it's just socially. Uh, challenging to do that. So I try and do whatever I can to say, no, it's okay. You can have a better experience. Even everyone if will have a better Everyone experience. has a better experience if you do this. So yeah, that's probably the law of two feet is probably the out. biggest one. Well, just feel free to don't yeah. be bored. Don't, yeah. don't ever be bored. And once people figure it out, then they start doing all kinds of stuff. They create new sessions yeah. uh they go they grab people who are also bored and they go get coffee and have other conversations and it's always this level of engagement which is not what you experience at a regular conference yeah yeah so uh what i have uh in my mind is that i kind of uh, mm. uh we use a software called spatial chat and there are others like gather town and other, but we love special chat because you're represented as a dot there and you can move your icon around and uh, you can join multiple groups. Uh, so if you have a grid, like literally grid on your uh, background, then and with a banner, this is like blah, blah, blah. Uh, James Ward wants to talk about uh, his favorite topic, Scala. Then you just move there and you listen to him and you participate in that conversation or you move to another thing, uh, to another conversation, another room and uh, just walk like you would do that in a real uh, open spaces uh, 
environment. So, and Maybe we, we just became, haven't had the right technology. No, I'm sure we haven't. <laughs> yes. So, and we became an official distributor for this uh, spatial chat thing. So, if anyone is interested in the audience or you're interested, I'm open to uh, talk about that and how that can be used. For example, we at our Scala-Love, J-Love, Haskell-Love conferences, we did um, sponsorship booth there. And they would run, for example, JetBrains run Ask Me Anything session, demo session, uh, like they were talking about hiring, working at uh, JetBrains about their different products. And they run like, I don't know, uh, raffles for people to get uh, licensing, uh, license uh, and coupons and things like that. So that was a lot of, a lot of fun. And it's different from uh, regular Zoom experience or just watching that on Twitch because you kind of engaged. Uh, of course, uh, you need to, as at uh, offline conference, you need to go somewhere and join that conversation. You need to be uh, like active uh, to get the best of it. But that's true about the uh, offline conferences too. You mm-hmm. come to people, you grab their button and say, "Hey, yeah, I want to talk to come, you." Come, yeah, come is down. that what we're calling them now? Offline conferences—they sound like second-class citizens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 offline conferences. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. like oh, that's an offline conference. Yeah, it's like. Um, yeah, spatial chat would be interesting. Yeah, interesting to try for this. Oh yeah, maybe we can at J Love do do a, a open spaces like let's track do that or something. Mm-hmm. Let's do that. Why not? Yeah. Okay, well that I think is what I wanted to know about that. My other question, because we've been struggling with this, is so. Um, James and I, along with another friend of ours, Bill, we're working on. Um, Atomic Scala 3. And yeah, I, um, for the original Atomic Scala, I had written a, a an atom at the very end on type classes and mm-hmm. kind of thought that I, I mean, the, the, the syntax has changed and I think it's better now, but yeah. I'm still, I, I, I'm struggling to internalize, you know, type classes in a way that, um, you know, it's just transparently obvious to me. And I haven't, uh, we've been, we've been struggling with this, trying to come up with like, what is the simplest example that you can express the value of type classes? I think it really has to start with why are we doing this? You know, what, what are we achieving by using type classes? And I'm hoping that you have some insights on that. So what first comes to mind is that, uh, for example, you have, you're building a library or you're using a library and in their API, they're using type classes. It's really uh, simple for you to uh, implement that on your type uh, and use that library functionality. Does that make sense? That's something that, well, what are we abstracting though? See, I mean, by, by separating the type class from the rest of the code and, and this, what keeps coming back to me is it's kind of like a compile time visitor pattern because visitor says, oh, we've got some code over here. We've got this class hierarchy 
And we'd like to be able to add new virtual functions to that. But we can't touch that hierarchy because that's, you know, from the vendor or whatever. So what the yes. vendor does is they add an accept function throughout. And now you can create a new object and pass it in. And it acts as if you've added a new virtual function to that hierarchy. Yes, that's 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 what I was saying. But you said that more in object-oriented part. And <laughs> well, right. And so I'm going. Okay, that feels like that's a good starting point. But I also feel like it's not quite. Uh, it doesn't quite grasp the, uh, the often the way I describe like design patterns in general is we're trying to separate things that change from things that stay the same. So the library that you're talking about, okay, that's stays the same. And the type yes. class is the part that changes, but yes. beyond that, it's kind of like, uh, I, I mean, is that, is, it's not enough for you? Is no. that what you're saying? No, because I had I need mm. to come up with like a, the simplest example that I can give people where they can look at it and go, oh, I understand that. Here's here's what's staying the same and here's what's changing. Um, I guess this I think one reason why this is so hard to unravel in a way that you can teach easily mm -hmm. is that the one of the core maybe maybe the core value or reason for why we need type classes is because there is some thing that you don't control. Right. And, and, and that is just a hard thing to like show because what you what you want to do is you want to show here's this code and then here's type classes, but you've just like, they're essentially like seeing the code. And so that it's really hard to express in that you don't control, you don't this, control code. this code because you've just like showed them this code. So they're like, I, yeah. I, you know, I can, I obviously control that code. I just, it's right there. I, I can see it and I can modify it. But um, I mean, you, you know, you express it in the terms of, okay, I'm creating a library that I want other people to be able to easily adapt to new purposes, yes. which I can't anticipate. Yeah. Yes. And so, but I can anticipate how, you know, the place where that's changing, I can see that. And so I can go, okay, I'll, I, and again, that's, that's kind of like what visitor allows you to do, except that that's maybe type classes doesn't have that object oriented hierarchy built into it. I wonder if a yeah, quality would also be Also it's a uh, compiler time. Right. Um, Checked. Yes. So mm -hmm. that's Right, it's determined at compile time, whereas the you know visitor uses a double dispatch. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Well, I don't know. I wonder if equality would be a simpler use case for equality. Us yeah, like uh, like making it so you could say bird equals equals pasta, you know, kind of kind uh -huh. of thing. Because um, doesn't the Scala three has some way to like turn on uh type class based equality doesn't it is it, i'm not sure I, no i don't remember there's, there's something in scala 3 where they tried to they tried to get rid of the so right now in java you can say any type equals equals any other type and that code compiles mm -hmm. and this is bad 
and leads to a lot of potential bugs because it relies on objects equal, which is just defaults to. Yeah. It's like you have, you have no compiled feedback that says Mm -hmm. you really shouldn't be comparing these two things. Yeah. 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 And so Scala three, I don't think it's on by default, but I think there's a way to like turn off that ability to do equals equals on any unrelated things. And so the way that the way that you actually get can compare unrelated things when you turn this off is you have to have a type class that can do an equality comparison between type A and type B. And it knows at compile time. So and it knows it compi- so you have to have a type class that there. Yeah. And if you don't have that type class, then you get a compiler that says, hey, you can't compare A and B. They're unrelated. And that's and not really bound class. to a hierarchy. Right. Okay. Um, well, and Bill mentioned that there's a something to do with type conversion that's built into Scala so that, and it might even be doing that kind of thing. And maybe, maybe it was comparison. I don't know, but, but I thought it was, you know, so, so my thought was, oh, maybe we could do something silly, like make um, a type class that would allow us to uh, convert a, a double into a Boolean or a care or something, you know, which normally you wouldn't do, but we could do it as a demonstration. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if that's, does that sound possible? Have you looked into Scala three enough to know whether that is something we can do, you know, where they might have a type class type classes built in. Oh, but is that type class built in? No. Oh, not for that conversion. I'm not sure. I don't remember. I, I looked at some point, but then everything changed. (laughs) Uh, yeah, because <laughs> they keep changing even the syntax. So I'm, I'm not that. sure at all. Yeah. I would rather yeah. have them change things at the last second when they realize, oh, this isn't going to work. Then say, oh no, we already decided that we can't change it, because then you're stuck with it forever. And I've lived yeah. too long with languages that are like that. Java. Yeah. I'm talking to you. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, true. We made a random decision in 1997 because we were in a hurry and now you guys have to live with it forever. But we were thinking about like when it's come, when it comes to the first release candidate, should you actually uh, add new features like what, like imports that they uh, added? This. Import syntax, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Or should you stuck to whatever you have and try to, you know, debug it through and see at issues and everything, starting from release candidate one. So the discussion that we had at my uh, Russian Scala podcast was um, like more what to expect from milestones, from release candidates, from candidates, and what should be the rules, because that was unexpected that they would add new syntax right before the release candidate. It's, I, I would say it depends on your, how, how robust your test framework is. Because hmm. my, I mean, like I've had this experience just in the last few days where I'm about to release uh, an update to a book. And as I'm reviewing it, I discover something and I go, oh no, I wouldn't want to put that out. And I'm able to change it and incorporate it because my test system is robust enough that it will find problems. And I, I don't know how you do that with the language 
other than having a huge regression they, test suite. They have a community built. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> do that with community builds so different libraries like zero cats whatever whatever type level libraries and etc are yeah that community build yep. system is actually pretty amazing i don't have you seen that no maybe all can tell us more about it because I, I only know a little bit so that is simple. You have your libraries and you know for sure that there uh, can be compiled uh, or should be. Uh, you should be able to compile them and uh, you just test your compiler against them. And there are nightly builds, so they do that every day. And while uh, the library is updating, they also check the uh, compile time. So, yeah. and it's a big um, code base. Yeah, so they're testing, I don't know, a thousand community projects or something at something, this point. Something, something, something. So, yeah, yeah so every night they they run this test to validate that the Scala, the, the nightly Scala compiler okay. build still that's works. That's pretty robust. And, and see, the other thing is the depth of the feature, like changing from underscore to star I would say, well, that's pretty benign in general. You know, that's that's not going to be like, I don't know, something you do with generics where yeah. the implications might not be seen. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. And I and I guess ultimately, it's like how much comes, effort is is it going to be for people to update? Well, that and and are there second and third level implications? And so right. something like. Uh, just a really basic syntax change. And I guess ultimately, you know, Martin looks at that and goes, you know, this is small enough, it could be fine. And I have to say it made me happy because I'm coming from languages where that's what star means. And so underscore seems like an aberration. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I just rather, I mean, I think it is beneficial to not arbitrarily make something different just for the heck of it. And so, and, and the, I think the overloading, it, that was one of the problems that Scala has had in the past is overloading things. And so, you know, underscore means, you know, any yeah, underscore means too many things. And so um, I, I like that they're trying to undo that a bit in this yeah yeah same so. with uh implicits right they're trying mm -hmm. to drop yep. that down into the extension methods uh type classes etc etc right because it's it's for me it's hard to deal with the overloading of keywords and we learned this on in this in c plus plus because i was on the standards committee for the first eight years and um initially you know, we wanted to keep, or we, Strustrup and some other folks wanted to keep the language what they called small, and they were doing that by overloading keywords. And I think pretty quickly they realized that that's not, you know, if if it's a different concept, you should have a different word for it. Yeah, I was thinking about like Java uh, Fresh releases, including 16s was records and a lot of new keywords actually and how they uh, 
working on implementing that so that the previous code uh, would work was because back compatibility is very important for Java, right? So, and it would understand that from the context that in that case record is, because uh, uh, I mean, something like type class or given might be uh, a, a word that you use for naming your variables in, in the code, but it's not super popular. But record, come on. Yeah. I mean, what do you do when you get records from database? You call them call records. It a record. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm a little disappointed that they didn't just call it like a data class or something. I'm not yeah. sure why they didn't you know, because that seems at least a little more unique or meaningful and and that's i mean i i complain a little bit about that with scala too calling it a case class what's the case whereas a data class like you in in kotlin you know it's like oh it's a class for data product product <laughs> <laughs> yeah something like that yeah it's a product <laughs> um data class sounds good to me yeah data class is good I want to switch gears back to some of the the stuff you've been doing around virtual conferences and your podcasts. Um, it seems like a lot of what you do is building community through those yeah. those ways. Just tell us a little more about your podcasts first, and and your I guess you talked a little bit about your conferences, but um, you you now have a company where you're running virtual conferences. But yeah, tell us more about your podcast and your virtual conferences yeah which which one i have five podcasts yeah tell us about all of them <laughs> five so podcasts I have, uh, five, five virtual conferences one per yeah yeah so i have um two russian podcasts one about scala and um actually this is how i started my podcasting um journey uh, I joined uh, Scala podcast in Russian. It's called Scala Last, which means rock climber uh, in Russian uh, because Scala is a rock in Russian. So that's uh, kind yeah, of fun. That's yeah. fun. I didn't uh, know that Scala meant rock in Russian. Yes. Yeah, so we're rock. That's awesome. <laughs> yes. Um, and um, Another one which is talking to about IT in general. Uh, it's pretty new one, and it's called New Podcast <laughs> to Final Dot Doc, <laughs> something like that. We change name, but it's New yeah. Podcast to. <laughs> Nice. You know how you would name a file. And yeah, then yeah. I have a Scala Love podcast where I interview people from Scala World uh, about everything related uh, to Scala and about their lives in general. And James was a guest there. Also, That's I really have fun. a new one, uh, Programming Love. And I just had wonderful, wonderful guest. James, again, was the first uh, guest on that podcast. <laughs> Uh, yeah. But you also had uh, Scott Hanselman on, right? Scott so. Hanselman, Kelsey Hightower. Yeah. Kelsey Hightower, uh, so, yeah. Yes. Uh, so Charity Majors is the next one, and oh, nice. I'm recording her on the uh, International Women's Day uh, oh, nice. on Monday. So that's, that's, awesome. that's yeah, that's going to be fun. So the idea is to build community and to, uh, you know, not only uh, interview people and ask them about technology, because you can easily find 
find the information about them on their blog post, on their own podcast. If you talk about Scott Hanselman, right? He made 800 episodes. 800 episodes. That's Over amazing. how many years? Uh Forever. He's, forever. he's saying he's, he's old. <laughs> I don't think he's old, but he's saying that. So over like 10 more. Basically, he does it every week. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So you're, you're getting close to that with your five podcasts now. Yeah. <laughs> I guess so. Um, and uh, the idea is that I want to talk about personality as well a little bit about like uh, things pain and joy pains and joys that uh like people are experiencing along their way and what we can learn about them so i always ask people about like how you go through the uh, pandemic and because it bothers everyone and i want to show the people that you're actual human being and uh, not just this voice on YouTube with the like fancy camera, fancy pants, whatever. <laughs> yeah. So, and uh, I have um, like my my email always. It's Oli at Confi Care. Confi Care is the name of my company. Always open for suggestions for guests, uh, for topics that we could discuss. Actually, yesterday I received my first email about programming laugh. Uh, someone wanted to be a guest, so I invited them, and that would be uh, super cool. We're gonna talk about Kubernetes. I don't know a lot of nice. about Kubernetes actually, to be honest. I used that like twice in production, and I never built a system from scratch with Kubernetes. So I'm excited yeah. to learn uh, things about that. And Fun. my my company it's called Conficare, and we uh, run lovely conferences. They call usually something laugh, data laugh, Scala laugh, Haskell laugh, J laugh, because uh, you know. It's probably, I, I was heard a little bit by uh, Scala Community Drama because it appears, pops up from time to time. And I actually feel like I'm so sensitive to things like that. I'm like, oh my God, guys, can we just be nice? And can we be excited about technology and not be excited about like fightings and all of that? And I was like, I want to start podcast or like a conference where everyone is friendly and we have um, like networking. So the most important part of my conference, of course, technical content, but you can get that on YouTube too or in on the blogs. But networking is what I care about and what I um, like. Um, for example, we have volunteers working and introducing speakers during our conference. And that's not because we, we, yes, part of it is that we're a smaller company and we don't have enough people on one hand. On another hand, what we really want is to share the conference with others and have people from the field who would come and introduce that speaker and speakers like we always have open CVP. Sometimes we invite people, but most of the time it's like CVP running process where we have blind CVP and we choose uh, based on the talk, not based on the uh, like person. Yeah. Yeah. Person. Credentials. Do you know um, Bill Venner's? Yeah, of course. He actually, he started a tradition. 
Um, and uh, together with Martin Andersky, they presented both uh, last year at Scala Love and they continue kind of continuation of their uh, previous uh, talks uh, on this uh, uh, during this edition, 2021. So, yeah, but... Well, Bill, I mean, we've been friends for... 20 years at least, probably longer. Anyway, um, he he reached out to me at one point several years ago, and he was going, I want to talk to somebody in the Python community about how they make their community so friendly. He was he was really wanting to, you know, work on, because I think all of us have had that experience with the, shall we say, prickliness that yeah. can exist in the Scala community. It's not everywhere, obviously, but it's enough that um, it can it can turn you off a bit. Yeah, I think I have a little insight why he did that. Uh, he's a, he was or is I'm not sure about now because I stepped down as a, a, a representative at advisory board. So there is Scala Center. It's a foundation uh, where companies like donate something and they recommend uh, Scala Center to. Uh, go certain directions, but it's just a recommendation. But Scala Center is uh, building a lot of tools, including the tools about uh, for migration to Scala 3, very important projects, etc. So he was a community representative there, uh, which means that he would gather feedback about uh, certain things that uh, Scala Center is doing and share that with the board. And we would decide when I was there, we would decide like what uh, conclusions we should make based on that. And uh, since there was uh, a lot of drama, uh, not a lot of, but some portion, some uh, people were fighting over uh, Twitter uh, against each other. And uh, he um, did a research about how different communities uh, work inside, like Python, Rust community, I think, uh, and others. So, but I, 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 then I stepped down and I'm not sure if uh, Bill is still doing that, but I think it was part of his research. That makes sense. That's cool. Well, it seems like like generally the Scala community has gotten much more friendly than it was in the past, and I and I think that I think that you know part of your um, mission to get people together and have them learn and be nice to each other is I think changing the tone of the community, and um, I'm certainly oh, appreciative you. of of you doing that and and the, all the work you put in to to it's a cultural issue, right? And how do you change yeah. culture, but to like do it differently? Well, and I wonder since uh, it seems like a lot of your conferences, people are meeting for the first time online. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And see what we have with the, um, like with the winter tech forum, which used to be the Java Posse roundup is people meet for the first time in person. And so uh, on the, like the Slack channel, Afterwards, that's always you can tell everybody knows each other and they have a they have this connection from being at the conference, often many conferences. And so they all treat each other with I mean, there's never any disrespect that I've ever seen. And so I wonder how you look at 
you know, it's got to be a lot harder in the virtual. Well, it always is. I mean, because, you know, you have people who are used to playing games and being mean to each other and stuff like that. And um, to change that perspective when you're not face to face seems like it would be challenging. So what I do, uh, like, I just talk about comfort of everyone, you know, like, privately. Then I create a Slack channel before the conference where I invite all speakers and all attendees, and I try to engage them before the conference, prior to the conference, so that they would know, like, if someone tweeted something interesting, I would post that or tag someone, just say hi, um, and things like that. So I'm trying to be proactive and engage people before the conference. Um, but so far, nobody was mean. But also, I'm just trying to be nice to people, and they're usually nice to me too. <laughs> be the change, yeah. huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know in the Python community, it was always... I mean, Guido was, he led this way and everybody who became part of the core development team all kind of fit that mold because there were people that he wanted to work yeah. with. And, you know, it, it, it sort of spreads that way. But I think once it became embedded in the culture, then it becomes self-sustaining. But to get it embedded, I don't know. I guess I'd like, I look at it in terms of, well, what sort of structure can we put in place so that it perpetuates automatically rather than you're, you're doing it using your own personality. And yeah, which, I see what you're saying. Which is great, but I, I'm always looking for structure. Yeah. Yeah. By, you by want, the way, you I control invited- over culture. <laughs> By the way, I invited no. Guido to date a laugh, and he said, "No, damn." <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. He, well, I mean, I know him. He's it, uh, that's actually a good sign for him because he tends to try and do too many things, and so the fact that he's saying no uh, is great. I, I'm, okay. I mean, I'm back here applauding. It's going, yes, <laughs> you need to say no more. I need to say no more. We all do. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. What what challenges have you seen with building building community and and um, trying to be a, a be the change of making the scholar community nicer? So um, right now, once it's my full time job, basically, uh, it's actually easier because I can be more like. I have more time to answer emails because sometimes people would just email me like and ask, how do I start uh, learning Scala? What resources should I look at? And et cetera, et cetera. And uh, it just a matter of time, I guess. I don't expect people to um, like become nice, nicer to each other instantly. Hmm. So, uh, 
it's hard work in terms of like how you think about like let's gather together in Clubhouse because it's a new <laughs> fancy <laughs> app or something or create like let's talk about this or in the podcast let's run a poll let's uh, do that but I now I have time for uh, my ideas to implement them so the challenge is just the time and I think um, if everyone had more time, they actually would become nicer because sometimes they just uh, write something really fast and uh, it, come, it may come across uh, as not as nice, but it's not because the person is mean, but just because they don't have enough time to answer it properly. Yeah. One of the, I take this nonviolent communication workshop on uh, Friday afternoons and um one of the things that the leader is always saying, and it takes me by surprise every time it happens, is she goes, okay, we're, we're trying to go too fast here. Let's slow down. And then she'll focus on something that you realize, oh, that's the important thing. And so that slowing down, and, and once you realize that we have this impulse to always hurry, and get things done yeah. quickly and every, you know, because capitalism has to move forward or whatever. Um, and then when you start looking at it and going, oh, if I slow down and just, you know, take that schedule away and just focus on the thing, then we actually shift something. We actually accomplish something. And so I'm trying to internalize that slowing down. Um, in my own world. Yes, that's that's exactly my thoughts too. Uh, like uh, when you're not rushed, you uh, can think it through more carefully and uh, um, maybe, maybe something will pop up in your mind and you will think of how you are perceived by others. Hmm. Yeah. That takes time and energy. Yeah. But but we're in a hurry. We're mm -hmm. always in a hurry. Yes, exactly. Hmm. That's cool. Um, well, that was delightful. Mm -hmm. Do we have anything else we want to chat about? Ollie, Bruce? No, I, I think I'm complete. <laughs> yeah, me too. Okay. Uh, no, I wanted to say something that I started to learn uh, Java uh, um, as a student, and the first book I uh, read on uh, Java was Thinking in Java. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Same for me. Same is true for me. Uh, yeah. Actually, I don't think it was the so first thank one. Thank you so much. For me, I read the Deedle and Deedle one uh. first. Because that was the uh, curriculum at school. Right. But then yeah. I didn't understand object-oriented programming. And I had a Java e-commerce app that was one class file and like 3,000 lines <laughs> long. Because I wrote it like I wrote my Perl. Yep. And uh, and so so then I read your book. And, and then I learned OO. And it was, yeah, changed everything. Well, thank you. Yeah, and uh, it's I I've read that in Russian because I didn't know English at the time, and it's called Philosophy of Java. Actually, if you translate that, wow, I did not yes. know that. Yeah, wow, philosophy of the philosophy of Java. Boy, that's a that's a heavy <laughs> mantle to wear. Uh, yeah, I like that though. 
I don't know if I could ever name a book like that in English because that just that says that's too bold. Uh, yeah, what? it's way too bold. Aren't you the Aristotle of Scala? So oh, man. Name atomics, <laughs> atomic I took, I took philosophy be. classes in college, and they all just seemed pointless and miserable to me. So, <laughs> so I, I wouldn't want to say that, but it sounds great. It sounds great. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Ollie. So good to be with you and have you on and appreciate your time and appreciate all you do for the community and helping developers learn and come together and connect. Uh, thank you so much. It was fun to uh, be here and uh, I hope to, you know, uh, have Bruce at my podcast too. And I keep repeating that, but unfortunately my schedule is so crazy and people pop up from time to time, but we will do that. There's no hurry. <laughs> yeah. That's right. <laughs> Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Ali. All right.